Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Pele leaned in and said something to Freddie. Don't let them change you. Keep working on what makes you different and what makes you special. It was great advice, but it caused me some problems. But what could change Freddie do? Soccer is going to explode and it's going to be around this kid. We were the Beatles. Everywhere we went, it was the Freddie show. And with that came the expectation and with that came the pressure. New episodes of American Prodigy drop Tuesdays from Blue Wire Podcasts. Hello and welcome to Here's Where It Went Wrong, the podcast where every week we have on one of our favorite comedians to talk about one of their favorite things in pop culture, history, and sports, and we track its history to figure out where it all went off the rails. I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Andrew Nadeau. Andrew, how you doing today, man? I'm doing good. So I did my Thanksgiving shopping today. And I realize this is the third episode in a row where we've talked about Thanksgiving, but that's because we're trying to get them all done. Like, this isn't going to come out until December 7th. You know what? I'm just going to change it. I did my Christmas shopping today when it was great. That's fantastic, especially for a Jewish man. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that made it a little bit weird, but uh, you know what? Got it done. I have not started mine yet. I'm waiting for all like, you know, the Black Friday deals because once again, we're recording all of these in the span of a week so that we don't get bogged down the holidays. I'm sorry you're listening to Thanksgiving again, but I'm just waiting for all the deals because I've not done any of my shopping. Every week I'm terrified that some massive news is going to come out and like we don't cover the news, but I keep feeling like, oh, no, something's big is going to happen. We're recording too far in advance. We're going to miss it. And then I remember that's not what we do on this show. That makes no difference to our content. Not at all. We focus mainly on history. No one's going to like really dive in here hoping for our take on the war that just broke out. Guys, there's not a war. I'm so sorry. I I, I scared you like if that. If there's a, a war tomorrow, we're going to feel so bad now. <laughs> but guys, we have a really fun episode planned today. Our guest, you could find her work on Amazon. Her special, These Lips, is streaming her one-hour special. She is also the co-writer and star of the Independent Spirit Award nominated The Foxy Merkins. Everyone, please welcome the very funny Jackie Monahan. Jackie, how are you? Well, I was just outside and there's a war going on. <laughs> oh, fuck, I was right. Oh, no. I narrowly missed getting shot. There was a grenade. 
Oh man, we just did a Twilight Zone episode, and this would be like my, my ironic Twilight Zone yeah. power of just the bad <laughs> things I think are going to happen. The news actually coming true. I know. Oh my god. Um, no, I'm really good. I'm very good. Thank you. Yeah, there's no war, peace. I really do believe in be the change you want to see. So I, I try to be as peaceful as I can, so that I can see peace. <laughs> I mean, so far it's working. And Jackie, by the way, also has a show. I first met Jackie when she did Cabin Fever Comedy on Comedy Hub. And now she has a show on the opposite Saturdays from mine on uh, twitch.tv slash Comedy Hub, which has been fantastic. So please go check that out too. But yeah, Jackie, can you tell us about your Amazon specials? Okay, yes. So the comedy special, I filmed it in Seattle at the Comedy Underground. And they were fantastic. And it was really fun to film. And I think it's really... Really funny and and somebody said that that i'm funnier than 90 percent of the comics out there can you believe completely that? agree absolutely 100 i can completely believe that thank you thank <laughs> you yeah so I, I don't like tooting my own horn but i like sometimes you have to but yeah i'm happy with how it came out and yeah i think everybody would enjoy it no, please feel free to be just straight up Louis Armstrong uh, when you're here. Toot your horn all oh, you yeah? want. Okay. <laughs> when did I record it? I recorded it two years ago. It feels like not that long ago, but because of the pandemic, it's like, right. oh yeah, it is a while ago. Um, There's a mulligan on this year. Yeah. <laughs> right? I want to do another one. I'm kind of like really bummed that I can't. I mean, what do you do? Do one on Zoom? I mean, I've seen a couple people do it, but it's hard to pull off. I think we're kind of got to wait. I mean, I feel better about that because that means I don't have to get enough content together <laughs> to release one. As long as I can't do it, I don't have to do it. I kind of feel like it might be interesting to do one that is evergreen that like can't last forever, but save like jokes that could be forever for a stand-up crowd so you get all the energy from it. But Absolutely. I don't know. Jackie Monahan Evergreen is a perfect stand-up special name. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, oh my God. I never thought of that. That's brilliant. Uh-huh, not just a hat rack. Uh, yeah, so I really like it. It's called These Lips because as a kid, I was like, not a kid, but like, you know, since I was a teenager, guys would always be like, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't thinking with this head. I was thinking with this one. So I was always like, oh yeah, well, I didn't say it with these lips. <laughs> fantastic title because they got the great excuse and i didn't have a good excuse yeah so then i got to like all right oh i didn't say that sorry yeah (laughs) i didn't say that that wasn't me and and what about the foxy merkins so the foxy merkins oh i love it so much yeah it was at sundance as well i had four screenings at sundance first i was in a movie called codependent lesbian space alien seek same it was my first acting ever and my part just kept getting bigger and bigger because i got along so well with the director so i was supposed to just have a little cameo and then i just got bigger and bigger so it was really nice because we had so much fun just filming like adding more stuff on like we finished all my scripted stuff and then we were just adding funny stuff because we had so much fun with it because I got to be an alien like I wasn't bald and everything and that went to Sundance too and then after she said I would love to and and she teaches writing at Columbia and she she's like people pay me a lot of money to learn how to write like this 
but I want to teach you how to write. You know, I was just doing stand-up at that time. So we started writing. We, we were going to make it short and then it just got bigger and bigger and it ended up being a feature, which I'm so happy about because I think it's so funny. Anyway, so it's it was all like beautiful. It's so funny because I like try so hard with stand-up, but like this all just came so easy because it wasn't like what I wanted, but I love it. It's just interesting in life, like, don't want anything and it'll come yeah. to <laughs> That's amazing. Guys, they're both on Amazon. The Foxy Merkins, these lips, go watch them both. Yeah, thank you so much for being here too. And the Foxy Merkins is a parody of my own private hideout. It's a parody right. of gay hustler movies, but it's lesbian hustlers. Like it's Midnight right. Cowboy. It's my own private hideout. We wanted to call it my own private Wisconsin, but they wouldn't let us. Oh, boo. That's, a, that's such a great title. The Foxy Merkins, also a great title, right. but... <laughs> My own private Wisconsin is just chef's kiss. So yeah, I got to play the Keanu Reeves character and then the Dustin Hoffman character in Midnight Cowboy. But yeah, but I'm a lesbian hooker. And it's funny because there's no such thing. Thank you so much for being on and to talk about literature today. I mean, this was the perfect matchup. So when, what have we got today? Today, we are going to be talking about female authors of the 18th and 19th centuries. I feel like that's crazy specific, but there is so much to cover here, guys. I mean, just a massive amount and stuff that is so interesting. So I'm going to get us started with the history of the novel. Can I just say real quick, I felt so fancy just saying what our topic was so about. Smart. That was the most educated. I Because usually I'm the dumb one. <laughs> uh, so being able to just say women authors of the 18th and 19th centuries. I put on a voice every time I say yeah, it, I just realized. I heard it and I was like, God, is when smart? <laughs> I mean, I would like to consider myself one in my day today, but especially right now when talking about female authors of the 18th and 19th centuries. Well, yeah, and especially as two guys doing a podcast, we want to make sure that our voices are the quietest here. <laughs> so this felt like a really good topic. And yeah, when perfect delivery, I thought, God, is, is when a genius? It was just incredible. God, no. I, I can I can sound like one at best. Uh, women authors of the 18th and 19th centuries. That was the millionaire from Gilligan's yeah. Island. It turned into that at the end. Still totally bought it. So yeah, we're, we're going to dive into this. And we've got first, these fantastic writers came out basically around the appearance of the novel itself. The novel was a, a new form of writing in the Western world at this point. Before this, stories used historical or mythological characters. Like the, all the relatability was in metaphor, not experience. But now characters were introduced that could mirror the lives of people actually reading it, which was groundbreaking, but it was also considered frivolous by the upper class, like the way romance novels are judged today, like novels, like you're not reading about Hercules. It's no, this is about a guy who's going through the same stuff I am. And Daniel Defoe is often credited as being the author of the first English novel in Robinson Crusoe. This, there's a bit of debate on this. It's hard to pinpoint because the, the term itself is a bit ambiguous. But one of the reasons it's considered the first over similar works of the time period, like Swift's Gulliver Travels, which was seven years later, is Swift still follows the previous form of selecting pieces of their protagonist's adventures. But Defoe and Crusoe, he follows the protagonist over their whole life and includes the mundane aspects and the, and the boring parts. The world is built around the character. And I realize this is so common commonplace today, but it was absolutely groundbreaking at the time that you were going to follow one person through their entire life, including what they might have had for breakfast. <laughs> and that person never existed. Yeah, <laughs> that was it. Yeah, before this, it was either real people or mythological characters. By the way, the first overall novel is credited to a Japanese woman, Minasaki Shikibu, uh, and her work, The Tale of Genji. This is the, uh, you know, about a thousand years ago and the first real novel. But finally, you know, the West catches up eventually. So I think what was interesting here was the 
Enlightenment allows for the emergence here, which some date that as early as 1637 with Descartes. Some say Newton's Principia in 1689. I'm a bit more inclined to agree with, but obviously started around Descartes' time. The French just say 1715 when Louis XIV died. It's like, no, didn't didn't start till our, our guy kicked it. And then Enlightenment. <laughs> so the uh, Enlightenment philosophers like Descartes and Locke propose that truth could be found through observation of life rather than through like the allowed knowledge of institutions. And this is the big change that we see here in authors because suddenly their observations become relevant and there's a, a realization that they can create out of this what they've seen and they can find truth in their own reality. This was a fantastic advancement in, in writing. It, it's very funny to talk about this and be like, oh yeah, this all had to be new at some point. Right. Because like just hearing about, so people were able to tell stories that were like real life, <laughs> but it actually was not real life. And I'm like, yeah. Of course. But at the time, people were furious. They're like reading about some guy eating his breakfast and being like, who in history is this man? <laughs> is this Heracles? Yeah. <laughs> is this one of the lesser gods? Right. You couldn't even look it up and find out. It was like, no, it's just some dude. And it's like just, watching uh, Queen's Gambit and finding out it's not real. Yeah. <laughs> I was so shocked when it turned out that Queen's Gambit was not based on a real life person. Like when I found out that that was just a, you know what? Yes, that's exactly what this is. Because I was furious when I found out that I was telling people about a historical drama that I watched. <laughs> We all were. Why is that? It was fantastic. I mean, it was a great series. I really enjoyed that. It's so good, but none of us wanted to believe that it was fake. I know. Everybody I know thought they were watching like a docu-series. Not a docu-series, I, but narrative. They did such a good job with it. And also it kind of felt like, why would you tell this story? I mean, you if, unless it's real, like you have to trust that you can get the public into chess in the 50s. <laughs> like that's a bold leap if it didn't really happen. And they did. They did a they great did. job. It's the most watched limited series in Netflix history. And it's only been out 28 days. It's that's so incredible. good. But like Mrs. Maisel, nobody thought that was based right. off someone real. Right. But I guess That's it's true. different because it's entertainment. But also, it's so not real. Like, everybody I know is mad at that show because it's yeah. so, there's so many. Like, oh, just get up on stage and just talk about your day. Like, no, you need to, to make jokes. Right. <laughs> she makes it look so easy. But we all knew that right away. But the chess, we were just like, no, this is based on something real. Do you know how much time we spend writing and rewriting and telling the same joke over and over again? They were really beautiful-minded chess for us. Yeah. But Beautiful Mind was real. <laughs> Anyways, sorry, Andrew. I had to go off on that tangent. And then Jackie completely had to shoot down my idea by giving me a perfect example. Yeah. <laughs> Also, by the way, I did get a call from my mother after Mrs. Maisel came out. She said, like, is that it? And I was like, no, that's not it. I got to write this over and over again. So, yeah. All right. We're, we're back in, in history where uh, there are probably chess players still, but not that interesting. So <laughs> we're going to go with the British development as a capitalist economy here. I swear all of this stuff is so relevant to literature. It was amazing how much had to coincide for this to explode like it did because we see a sudden and rapid expansion of a middle class and a middle class that becomes desperate to achieve the status of upper class because this is like the first time you could become wealthy by means other than inheriting money. And yeah, obviously everyone wants to, to get after this and the writing can reflect this. Actually, my personal favorite kind of treatise on this was the uh, novella Flatland by Edwin Abbott Abbott in 1884, which is a, a a, a great short story that is just a commentary on the Victorian era, but instead of status, it's shape-based. It's a two-dimensional world. I cannot 
explain this in a way that's interesting. I can feel when glazing over, but it's a fascinating story. No, no, I'm just like, do I need to be high to understand this? You're just like, look, it's about a circle that dreams of being a square and it's supposed to represent class struggles in capitalistic France. And like, I'm just like, yeah, yeah, man, totally. Let's 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 talk about that. The mocking tone makes it sound dumb, but that's exactly what it is, except the squares want to be circles. <laughs> <laughs> OK, thank God. Thank God that I can bully this French writer about his capitalistic writings. It's, it's British. It's Victorian. But yeah, look, the more sides that, that you have, the higher your status. Circles are the highest. That is some Dr. Seuss level shit on as far <laughs> as helping you understand class and race struggles. All right. Here's my favorite one, though, because obviously they're indicating how women are treated this time. Women are line segments. But my favorite part is because they're line siblings and it's a two-dimensional world, so you can't necessarily gauge where they are, sometimes they just stab men with their bodies and kill them. What the fuck is this book? <laughs> this is your favorite book? It's my favorite treatise on the Victorian era. I mean, it's very specific. On the Victorian era using metaphor. It was good. It was a solid read. Well, yeah, if you if you break down a category to that specific, of course it could be <laughs> your favorite of that. There's only one book about it. Yeah, but it's a very interesting treatise and the, and the metaphor in it is is really solid. It reminds me of one of my favorite books. So there were some uh, sneeches without stars <laughs> on their bellies, and that was supposed to represent racism. <laughs> I hate that this is an apt comparison. There was, I started explaining. I thought there is no way I can explain <laughs> this and not sound like I'm a fucking idiot, but it's a good book. <laughs> It just, it, it really just sounds like a child's understanding. Like, and I'm sure at the time you had to break it down to a child's understanding because like people weren't reading, people didn't really understand the, the breakdowns and whatnot. I'm sure this is a very good metaphor at the time, but Andrew, you're an adult. You can understand things throughout the metaphor of shapes. This wasn't, look, this wasn't a children's book. It was for adults, but it also dealt with math at the time. This was, I mean, okay. Just read the book and then we're going to do an episode on this. I can't possibly defend this. It sounds so stupid. There's nothing I can say. No, no, no. I understand. You learn shapes and math and it's a very important book. <laughs> I had one of those myself in elementary school. I'm going to have Wen read this and then we're going to do an episode and just have you guys decide which of us is wrong. Andrew, Andrew, I just want to know, when you started describing this book, did you think you could get away with it in any way, shape or form? I was less than two sentences in where I was like, oh, this is a bad idea. <laughs> Can I act out on the next episode killing people? Absolutely. We're going to get tape on the next one just for this. <laughs> just to show how women randomly murder men with their line bodies. Yeah, that's what I want to do. <laughs> I feel like your tone is adding a lot here. I feel like there's... Oh, I'm sorry. Was there a way for me to say this without it sounding silly? <laughs> It's, I mean, you know, no, but the tone is really adding a lot here. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we're moving on from Edwin Abbott Abbott, who also has a ridiculous name. But <laughs> before this, novelists had been patronized by rich benefactors, and the work was reflected by that. Now they've got it, by the way, this is pre-Victorian still, we just jumped ahead there. Now they have a reading public that, that can afford to purchase their work, and stories of romance, one where one marries up the social ladder, are greatly appealing. You know, the, these are fantasy novels. This is what their life could potentially be if they find the right guy. So the public loves this. The nobility 
incredibly offended. Hate it. How dare you suggest we marry down? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. <laughs> Rich people are so predictable. I know. <laughs> so then we see the advancements in printing technology. We see the rise of commercial printing houses. And the investment in these houses also meant that publishers are encouraging accessible works from novelists rather than exclusive manuscripts that are saved only for like rarefied circles. So yeah, the, this this begins to, to get huge. This is the start of a, a movement in novels. This is also where you see the formation of libraries out of philanthropic groups where they, they realize that there are still people that can't read, the lowest class still can't afford them, but it's largely Puritan sponsored and they want everything up to the Puritan standards, which means it's all like heavily edited. <laughs> These guys again? <laughs> I know. We just did Puritan. I guess it would be like two episodes ago now. Again, we recorded so much, guys. I think it was two episodes ago. <laughs> so they've also are printing it in uh, three volumes. So it's not all taken out at the same time, which is why you see these cliffhangers in two different segments in books from the time period because these are released serially. So we're, we're going to skip ahead a bit because th this is the boom of the period. A lot of it is advancing now. It's going really well, but it finally changes when the technology advances to the point where everyone can afford them. And it's it's this huge shift and writers realize they don't have to release serially. They don't have to edit their work. They can take control of their own content. And unfortunately, it also coincides with libraries <laughs> losing popularity, which I think is very sad. Uh, but there obviously is a resurgence at one point and we, we need another one. But yeah, so now we've reached the point in like the late 19th century where we've got writers creating their own content released to a public that can actually read it and it completely changes the game forever 2020 has already reshaped how we work and it's almost over businesses across the globe are challenged to be their most efficient which means every hire is critical indeed is here to help indeed is the number one job site in the world with more total visits than any other job site according to comscore indeed helps you find quality candidates quickly so you can focus on hiring the person you need to keep your business going. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need. You can pause your account at any time and there are no long-term contracts. And now, Indeed's new way of matching you with candidates instantly delivers a short list of quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job criteria that you can contact the moment you sponsor a job, making Indeed the only job site that can move as fast as you do. 73% of online job seekers in the U.S. visiting Indeed each month according to Comscore, total visits. So it's clear Indeed can help you get the quality hire you need. And that's why more than 3 million businesses worldwide use Indeed for hiring. Right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job posts, which means more quality candidates will see it fast. Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. This is their best offer available anywhere. Go right now to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Offer valid through December 31st. Terms and conditions apply. The wait is finally over. Football is back. You might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. Bet Online is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on every possible chance to win this season. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, Bet Online gives you more options to wager than anywhere else. You can get in on their season opening bonuses today and start off wagering on wins, division, and championship futures all day, every day. Head to Bet Online today and take advantage of all the great sign up bonuses. 
Don't forget to use promo code BLUEWIRE at betonline.ag. That's BLUEWIRE, all one word. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. But yeah, so now we've reached the point in like the late 19th century where we've got writers creating their own content released to a public that can actually read it. And it completely changes the game forever. And that brings us to some of the great writers of the time. So first, we're going to talk about Charlotte Bronte, who wrote Jane Eyre. And if you don't know, uh, Jane Eyre is probably a book that you've pretended to read several times, but it was actually the uh, it revolutionized the, the writing of novels. It was the first to focus on a protagonist's moral and spiritual development through an intimate first person narrative, as in you are going through you're reading the book in a first person narrative and you are actually getting the inner workings of them going through decisions in their head. It's not just like this character exists. They make breakfast. They go to work. They are a spy and they kill people. It's not a, It's not just like a third person of just God, like... That took a big twist. It was breakfast, work, and then murder. <laughs> I wanted this to be a compelling fake book that I'm describing. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. My real one was such a bummer. You had to bring us back. <laughs> <laughs> and so pretty much the way Jane Eyre goes is that it follows its title character, but it lets you know kind of why she's making her decision. You're not a far-off observer who just notices what's happening. You are getting her omniscience in her thinking of why she is going through everything that she's going through and why she's making the decision that she's making and how she feels about everything that's going on. This sounds so basic, you guys. But it wouldn't exist without her. It would not exist. It, it was She was the first person to just write it down and make it the way that it is. And it was revolutionary. There is a reason we actually still talk about Jane Eyre, why people are still assigning Jane Eyre to be read to this day. It's because this has never been done before. It would be like if somebody just like dropped a completely new form of entertainment in your lap it was just like here it is because this is a book that had never been done before it has never been written in such a way and really also i'm gonna say it the book actually pretty good i like it i had to read it in college and i was just like okay not bad no it was absolutely amazing and and what was so interesting about it was it was also you know you had mentioned kind of the, the first delve into the psychological exploration and this was something that george elliott marianne evans uh, her real name did so well too uh with with silas marner i mean in all of her works but in silas marner i especially liked it where what she did was instead of making it, it in that strict first person it was an exploration of motive of why characters might be doing the things they're doing and this was also unheard of uh, at, at the time where she's really starting to understand motive and, and starting to build characters in a sense where you can relate and that relatability was fascinating and massive and it is so weird to explain these things because you can't imagine a book without it now but that's what these women did they started all of this yeah can i just say one thing that i especially love about jane Eyre? for one it was published as an autobiography which like for people like yeah, i know novels at this point aren't new but i still have to think that that's something that fucked a few people up who was what it was described as an autobiography because she wrote it as if it were such so that makes sense a lot of Jane Eyre focuses on Jane Eyre's romance with Mr. Rochester and spoilers for a book that is so old, so old and that you should have read by now. But a big part of the book is Mr. Rochester proposes to Jane Eyre. Uh, it comes out that actually he is in fact 
still married, but his wife is locked away in the home because she's insane. And so she's like scandalized. She's like, oh, I can't be with you. Eventually, the wife escapes and burns the house down with him in it and kills herself, which is supposed to be like the happy way they wrap this up is that a woman who was locked away against her will committed suicide for our characters to have a happy ending. But I especially like it. I had to look this up because at the time I laughed out loud when I read this. She visits Mr. Rochester, who is going to propose to her again, but he has lost his eye. He has also lost a hand. He has no eyesight. Uh, He asks uh, Jane Eyre, am I hideous, Jane? And she goes, very, sir. You always were, you know, which is an incredible, burn it's an incredible bird bronte congrats that was such like a mean thing to slide in there into jane Eyre. but yeah i just love that it was all wrapped up with a bow by being like and then the insane woman killed herself and the protagonist had a lovely marriage <laughs> well and this was also a change in the storytelling at the time was giving things a you know quote happy ending because then if, if your readers are going to suddenly relate to the characters it needs to end well which meant killing off the innocent person <laughs> in order to have the person that they've related to suddenly marry someone wealthy well you have to understand they were not innocent they had the crime of a mental disorder these were bad times this was i mean the writing was fantastic times not so much there was a lot going on here (laughs) tuberculosis oh god it was everywhere (laughs) just all the time everyone had tb it was just oh man everyone was carrying around a like a white handkerchief but with roses embroidered in it so that then when they if they did cough up blood people like on passerby would just think oh it's one of the roses (laughs) like that's why if you're wondering why old handkerchiefs had roses it was to hide the fact that you could cough up blood in there and nobody would think that you had tuberculosis but you would know because you'd inspect right (laughs) dramatically at at the beginning of a movie so we know that you're not going to make it to the end Uh, that's one of my favorite things whenever a character coughs in a movie you're like ah they're gonna get it and we wanted to talk a lot about shelly too which i thought you had some really good commentary on about the the jane Eyre tie-in well for one mary shelly basically lived the plot of jane Eyre. (laughs) she had fallen in love with percy shelly famously they uh they had their their weekend getaway together with lord byron john william polidori and Claire Claremont uh, in Geneva, Switzerland, where they decided that they were going to entertain each other with ghost tales. And during this time, Shelley came up with the idea of Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus. I'm going to get into that book later because that is a book that I've read three times. It's one of my favorite books. Fantastic. But yeah, Mary Shelley was not with Percy Shelley originally because he was married. So they couldn't be together. They kind of ran off together, but they were luckily able to get together after Percy Shelley's wife killed herself, which is the plot of Jane Eyre playing out in real life. I mean... That luckily is carrying a lot of weight. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's okay. Not luckily, but like luckily. I mean, luckily for her, but you know. <laughs> Look, if this is an 18th or 19th century novel, that was considered lucky circumstances. It was. No, I, I agree. This was consistent. This is why you could end up in a book and have people cheering for it because this was the win. Everyone back then was a monster. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which, you know, the plot of Frankenstein. God, everything comes full circle. So then you go into Mary Shelley's most famous work, which is... Before we hit Mary Shelley, because the Mary Wollstonecraft, her mother, the statue of her mother has just come out now in real life among much debate because it's a depiction of a nude woman, which nobody should object to. That part's fine. Except that 
Wollstonecraft spoke often about the objectification of women and how they should be valued beyond that. And now this new statue has appeared. And this is obviously a big topic at the moment. And everyone has their own opinions on this, of course, but I felt like it's at least worth mentioning because Mary Wollstonecraft was an early feminist and her work is absolutely inspiring and continues on today and is still something that is studied. So it's worth seeing where Mary Shelley came from. And you can see this history reflected in her work. And yeah, Google Google the statue. I mean, it's, it's a good piece of art, whether or not it's, it's appropriate as Mary Wollstonecraft is debatable, but it's definitely worth looking up. I did not know that. That is actually very fascinating. When did this statue get unveiled? Uh, Maybe two weeks ago, maybe? Two weeks ago. So wait, wait. So you're telling me that they were just like, oh, we actually made this statue of a very famous feminist and they were just like, and we're putting it in the nude just because we think that that's feminism. The sculptor said it's a representation of every woman, which is what Mary Wollstonecraft should represent. And to add clothing would take away from that as, as that is not every woman, their, their form is, which is an understandable point. But obviously, in contrast with Mary Wollstonecraft's message of basically, my body is the least important part here. This is what I'm being judged by when I'm this fantastic writer. So which is, is obviously a constant issue for all of Honestly, one of my favorite things in, in reading about these, <laughs> the, the uh, feminist history of, of writing is just the times when people like Nathaniel Hawthorne are just such a little bitch about it. <laughs> <laughs> it is fantastic watching, reading the, the excerpts from Nathaniel Hawthorne saying, I can't compete these women writers are too good but he's such a dick he can't give them that he says they're they're so good it's like they write because they're possessed by the devil which is the only way they could possibly be that good they can't be better than me if they're not and watching reading about the nathaniel hawthorne tantrums i've done it over and over again it's absolutely fantastic i'm gonna be honest with you andrew i've seen many a male comic take that route so <laughs> i have too it's that's true i mean you can see it so often here it's just better when you watch nathaniel hawthorne just get so completely owned over and over again <laughs> <laughs> that is absolutely amazing. I just love the balls of this sculptor to be like Mary Wollstonecraft writing all this stuff about don't sexualize women and the sculptor just being like, don't worry, I got this. Yeah. <laughs> So it is, is worth looking into now. And it's obviously a d- debatable issue. Wait, was it a male sculptor? I believe it was a woman sculptor. Okay, at least it was a woman sculptor. I'll, I'll give them that. So that helps. Doesn't fix it completely, but it helps a lot. If there is a woman who is famously like, my body is not the most important part of me. And you're a guy just being like, but what did her breasts look like? You're a piece of right. shit. <laughs> So yeah, it, it's it's uh, worth looking into, but that that is a whole separate episode. We can do an art episode too. We should do an art episode. I'm in. When's on board? <laughs> As with all of them, Andrew, whatever episode you want to do, I will figure out a way to learn enough about it to fake my way through <laughs> one parentheses one podcast. Guys, I I cannot tell you the panic that set in when we had the guest on, and and they said, you know, what? we should do an episode on Dragon Ball Z, and I just realized I have no possible way to prepare for any of this. I'm so glad when I have this absolute disparate area of study because I feel so dumb when we have to cover anything pop culture. So guys, we got you covered, uh, but only one of us at a time. Speaking of pop culture, though, and Mary Shelley, her famous work is Frankenstein or the Modern Prometheus, which is basically the first sci-fi novel. The genre of science fiction did not exist before Frankenstein came out. You know the story. What you don't probably know is, if you haven't read it, is the monster is very intelligent, which is something that, like so many adaptations, just 
skipped over when they first started adapting it in the 30s uh, with like the Firebad, Boris Karloff, uh, Universal Monster movies of the time presented the Frankenstein's monster as mute, almost incapable of speaking, not capable of rational thought. But the story that Mary Shelley wrote was a tragedy, a true tragedy of the fact that, yes, Dr. Frankenstein created a life out of dead body parts, gave it sentience. It was immediately rejected by its maker and tried to figure out where its place was in the world. And the point was, is that it didn't have one. It doesn't belong in this world. It's gut wrenching. It's a it's a heavy and amazing story. It's a fantastic book. If you have never read Frankenstein, if you only know Frankenstein through pop culture, read the book. It is one of my favorite novels of all time. Mary Shelley, like I said before, invented science fiction with this book. And she was like 19 at the time, right? Yeah, she was so young at the time. This book was published in 1818. You would not have Asimov. You would not have Star Trek. You would not have Star Wars. You would not have any of the basis of the great science fiction building blocks without this little horror novel that came out due to a weekend away with couples that were just trying to kill time on rainy afternoons. And that is such like a mind-blowing thing to me, is that you would not have this whole genre of literature unless these couples weren't bored and looking for ways to entertain each other and hadn't figured out that you could all just fuck each other on a weekend away with a bunch of couples. (laughs) (laughs) I went on a rant. Frankenstein is one of my favorite books. I've read it three times. I wrote my, my senior high school paper on it. I wrote my brother's senior high school paper <laughs> on it. Uh, he did not read the book. Uh, it's, it's one of my favorites. I had to go on the rant. Anyways, uh, now let's get into the crux of the show. Jackie, please tell us, where did it go wrong? It went horribly wrong when Emily Dickinson came to town and she kept trying to get her poems published and nobody would publish her. She went to every single publication and she got one poem published, but they added a title to it that wasn't hers and it just detracted from it. And then she ended up dying without ever publishing her poems. And then her sister Lavinia Dickinson found the poems and then Mabel Todd, who was having an affair with Emily Dickinson's brother, who was married, and Mabel Todd was married as well. But she was more aggressive, and she knew she kept trying to to meet Emily Dickinson, but nobody would let Emily Dickinson didn't want to meet her. So she made up the rumor that Emily was a recluse. And then everybody loved saying, jumped on it, that she was a recluse and that she didn't want to be published. But Emily wasn't a recluse. She just didn't want to meet Mabel Todd because Mabel Todd was having an affair with her brother. That's incredible. Like the narcissism that it takes to just be like, oh, I would love to meet you. Hey, I'm good. You're kind of a bitch. I don't want to do this whole thing. And then the response being, Wow, that hermit refuses to leave her home. She is scared of the outside world and does not want to be published ever. <laughs> Meanwhile, she was, she was, I mean, that's all she did. Do you know how Steve Jobs wore the same outfit every day to take away that decision making? Yeah. 
Emily Dickinson did the same thing. She wore the same thing every day. She just wanted to write. She loved writing and the poems that she wrote. And because we heard she was a recluse and that she wanted to only be discovered posthumously, which is a complete lie, she wanted to be discovered while she was alive. Right. She, she went to every publication and she went through every single avenue that she knew of to try to get published. And they ended up, the first female poem published was Helen Hunt Jackson. And her poetry just wasn't as pushing boundaries as Emily's was. So Emily's poems were so outrageous and so pushing boundaries that it scared people. That because she was really was the first modern poet. It was homoerotic poetry. And it wasn't until 30 years ago that with the red light, they went over her poetry again and saw a bunch of erasures where all the poems were written to Susan, to a woman. So they were saying that she was a recluse that didn't want to be published, but yet she was having lesbian affairs. She had two that are known of, but there, there were probably more, but also a ton of her poems. She wrote 2,000 poems. Only 11 were published in her lifetime. And they were all like doctored up in some way. And without her permission. Yeah, without her permission. And they took her poems and erased Susan and put masters so, so that I, they were for two all different men, which wasn't true. It was They were all to Susan. But they didn't find out until the red light came out and they could see that they were erased. I am fascinated. I didn't get to that part. I read the part of, about Master and the debate over who that was potentially applying to. And I hate these scholarly pieces where it's like, yeah, her best friend ever. They saw each other every day, shared a bed. That's friendship. And it's like, or maybe they were in love, considering all of her poems were about love. And this is, by the way, she was the first poet that I ever got into. In fourth grade, I was carrying around. God, I was a terrible fourth grader. I had I had her book in my backpack and Edgar Allan Poe was the other one that got to do the same. I, I'll be honest with you, Andrew. I would bully you for this, but fourth grade was actually the year that I read Frankenstein. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> oh, I love this symmetry. Your inner children are going nuts right now. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we're absolutely losing it. I do think that we do need to point out, though, that Susan is believed to be Susan Huntington Gilbert Dickinson, which was her sister-in-law. Right. There is some fascinating history on this, and it is one of the hardest that I've had been able to source. And part of uh, what Jackie mentioned about the label of her being a recluse, there were citations about how little she went outside. It was like, yeah, because she's writing 1,800 poems. Obviously, she did deal, deal with a lot of trauma. She dealt with a lot of loss, stuff that could obviously give one cause to stay indoors. But I feel like it's underwritten and taken away from the fact that she was writing all of this time when she's choosing not to go out. It's not necessarily a, a fear of society. And as Jackie pointed out, obviously a case too of just someone that she didn't want to see. But when you're able to write like she is and her passion for writing was what was obvious in her work itself, but also in her letter, the way she spoke of writing, this was what she wanted to do. She didn't want to go out if she was able to write and to paint her as a recluse because of that was such a disservice. I mean, when you're one of the greatest living writers, you have this passion for 
the written word for creating. You're writing these beautiful poems to somebody who, you know, at the time you can't be with, which is tragic in its own way. And maybe she didn't want those certain poems to be, you know, published until she was dead. Maybe that's where some people got this idea. But also, you're doing this craft at such a high level. It's your only passion. What are you going to do out in the world at this time? (laughs) It was awful for you out there. Of course you're going to want to stay at home with your lover and writing beautiful poems. What what did the world have to offer her? Right. And she wouldn't go to church. Like she was one of the first people that was like, I'm not going to church. Right. So she would stay home and write and and try to get Susan to stay home too. Say you're sick so we can do that thing we like. Yeah, that thing we like. I love it. And also the people said that she had some dark poems, but the house was like, all she saw out the window was a cemetery. Like she saw funerals all the time. So she had some dark poems, but she had mostly beautiful romantic poems to Susan. Yeah. But she had, they had deep passion. They had deep love. And to call her a recluse was such a disservice to all women because we, I mean, I grew up thinking you don't want to be this passionate about something you're going to end up being a recluse, <laughs> you know, you don't want to, you don't want to love all, all, you know, putting everything into what you want to do, or you're going to be a recluse. Like I really thought that. <laughs> and I remember hearing an interview with Stevie Nicks and she was like, yeah, I knew I had to like not get married and not have children. If I wanted to pursue my passion, like this is drained, like drilled in all of our heads because of Emily Dickinson. <laughs> so, yeah. It is. And I think uh, what went mentioned whether how this came about that they're saying she didn't want to be published in her lifetime. Part of this issue was that she said she wasn't going to change her work. She sent it to someone and they said, yeah, we might be able to put this in if you do this. And she said no, because she was strong enough and confident enough in her work that she knew it was better as it was. And obviously it, it took far too long for people to recognize it, but she's writing in form and meter that has not been done before. And she is inventing essentially a new form of poetry. And that's why it's so groundbreaking. It's, it's not just that it was good or clever or beautiful. It was that this way of writing hadn't been done before. And she was confident enough in her ability and in the quality of her work that she refused to have it published in any other form. And as Jackie pointed out, yeah, there were uh, 11 pieces published went to the, by the person that she sent them to without her giving permission to do so. Uh, and it's such a shame. And thankfully, since then, the originals have come out because, yeah, when she when she passed, her sisters found these collections of 400 poems each, just these massive works. And, and there was debate about what to do with them. And thankfully, we, we've seen them since then because they're they're beautiful and, and concise and breathtaking. And honestly, if you haven't read it, they're all very quick reads. You can go read five in five minutes. It'll take you no time, but it's worth looking up. And uh, especially if you have uh, any interest in poetry, because you'll you'll recognize it as stuff from today, as, as form that makes sense and know that it didn't exist before her. Uh, so it's absolutely worth looking into. As far as the talking about where it went wrong, because obviously the work itself is incredible, but she did not get to have the kind of acclaim that Bronte and Shelley were able to experience in their lives. They still were, they were still given the short end of the stick being born women in a, a time that was bad for women. Not like today is great, but you know, I'm just saying at the time they were still able to, after a while they were able to publish under their own names. Bronte did publish Jane Eyre under 
a pseudonym, but then came out about a year later saying, no, it was me the whole time. And even then she chose kind of a uh, a gender neutral name under which to publish Jane Eyre in the first place. Uh, but Bronte got to have that acclaim later and Shelley got to experience that acclaim. But Dickinson was forced into this box because of the social uh, ramifications of her just wearing black and not wanting to meet someone who she didn't like because her poems were very sapphic. They they were they were to women, which is fine, which is beautiful. They're they're beautiful works, but because of who she was, she didn't get that acclaim in her life, and it's so it's just so sad. It absolutely is. And one of the things I've got in my notes here when we're deciding where we want it to be, where it went wrong. My notes, I just got a vague patriarchy <laughs> because this was so consistently the, the issue. And as when pointed out with Bronte when she released her work, critics were mad because they couldn't tell who wrote it. There was an assumption that it was a man because it was good. Uh, and that was what was assumed at the time. But when it, it came out later, what bothered them so much was that she just transcended what was then considered gender-specific tone. There were things that they could point to and say, this this isn't masculine, this isn't feminine. Now we have a much better understanding of that, of the fluidity of gender. Obviously, we still have a long way to go, but this was a time period where if you had that, it was entirely internal. There, there was no consideration here for a, a, that feeling of uh, I'm a man and and in a woman's body, or uh, obviously that wasn't necessarily the case for these, these writers, but that I'm a woman and going to write in a tone that's generally considered masculine. This was something that people couldn't understand. They, they couldn't understand because it was improper and they couldn't understand it because the men couldn't do it. The women could write like they could and the men couldn't write like the women could. Talking about Bronte and Shelley, these were two genres that were created by these women. Right. <laughs> Exactly. It just would not exist without them. And the jealousy was rampant. And also what was interesting was this was during a time period where it was so understood by the public, this incorrect belief about what women were, that a lot of times, in fact, most of the time, the women believed it as well. They were told you have smaller brains, that you have feeble bodies. This was something that was understood by society, despite being so completely wrong. So to write around that, to be told this your entire life, and instead transcend it completely is absolutely astounding. And uh, when you read more and more about how it was continued to try to be shut down by by men, the way they succeeded around this is incredible. And like everything you read today is, is thanks to them. It would not exist in some form without what they did. Can you imagine how mad Star Wars fans are that a woman created science fiction? <laughs> All right, so that brings us to In Their Defense, where one of us has to defend this. So when, what do you have in their defense? Fine, I'll do it. I'll do it. <laughs> Guess who drew the short straw this episode, everybody? <laughs> I got to defend centuries of misogyny. So here we go. Buckle up and get your Twitter fingers ready because I'm about to step in some shit. This feels like a bad idea. It's a horrible idea, Andrew. I'm glad you asked. I respect you saying it. And you know why? Because you're a man. Anyways, let's roll, motherfuckers. So here's the thing about the patriarchy that you have to understand at the time. It's fucking awful throughout history. We haven't gotten much better with it, but here's what you gotta remember. Yes, did men invent the novel? No. Did we invent science fiction? Of course not. Did we invent first-person narrative in which you could understand the progress of a person's psychological and moral failings and progress throughout <laughs> the course of a story? God, no. That is definitely a woman who would create such a thing, obviously. But what men are able to do, and I want us to really focus on this, 
we are able to erase the name of a woman <laughs> off of any work of literature you give us, and we can put a man pronoun or name on that with the best of them, okay? You give me the most beautiful poem you've ever written and say it's to a lady? No, 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 no. I say not. I say it's to Mr. Penis McMahon. <laughs> and you know what? Everyone's going to read that and be like, this is gorgeous. It's a little weird that his name is Mr. Penis McMahon, but that's how they wrote it and i'm over here in the corner like nope i just erased and i put the name in there if you're thinking oh i love stories where people grow and they get better throughout and i understand their logical thinking we did not come up with that we did not actually do really that great with it when given the chance we are very emotional monsters but we are able to see a woman do that and think i'm gonna do that myself and then we do poorly for centuries we don't make flea bag but we sure as hell make master of none and that's what men do we take these beautiful great ideas and advancements and we are able to make them just slightly worse but more marketable than they had been in the past and you know what without that marketability you would not have the overwhelming success of bronte because guess what we faked and said it was a man you wouldn't have shelly's science fiction on your shelves you know why because we lied and said percy shelley had also written the book when he did not <laughs> you wouldn't have the beautiful poetry of emily dickinson because we would have read it and it'd been like this is a little gay but then we fixed it and made it heterosexual which for some reason mattered a lot to us so that is my defense of men being monsters because we were able to market it and we were able to make it popular so that women could get a crack at it 200 years later baby <laughs> Oh, God, I hate us so much. <laughs> Jackie, how was that? Do you hate me now? Nick, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> but it's interesting with women saying, like, being, taking a man's, na man's name for their novels. I feel like it does give men, like, an, a window into being sensitive. Like, if the women just made their novels and had their names on it, which they wouldn't have been able to do, but had they been able to do, it wouldn't have opened the window for men to be more sensitive because they had those uh, novels that were supposedly written by men. Oh my God, Jackie gave us a real in their defense. <laughs> no, I, I completely agree with that. I, I really love Wen's sarcasm laden one. I was 100% on board with the sarcasm at all and just how much we wrecked everything. But I am impressed Jackie was something real because I was thinking on this and I had nothing. <laughs> on a serious note, she was right. And I, you know what? There were probably a lot of men who did read Jane Eyre being like, man, this man is really killing it. And also like learning things about themselves because they were actually putting themselves in the mindset of a woman going through some terrible struggles of abuse, both physically and emotionally as she was growing up. And I'm sure that actually probably did have a profound impact on a lot of men who then were later like, oh, a girl wrote this. <laughs> So, after completely ruining what's going to be the future of my career with that rant and having Jackie manage to actually make it a beautiful and, and a smart analysis instead, which, thank you, Jackie, I wish you took the in their defense beforehand before I said all those awful things, but we'll take it. Uh, I think I think that's 
a wrap, guys. I think we did a great job. Uh, Jackie, so thank you so much for coming today. I love you guys. <laughs> we love you too. Thank you so much for being Thank on. you so much for doing this. This has been a blast. And I got to revisit some of my favorite works when you gave us what you wanted this to be. So I'm so happy you're on. I'm so glad with the topic. I'm having a, a freaking blast. Andrew, how do you think we did today? I had a fantastic time. This was great. I, again, also got to reread some of my favorites and read some new stuff. And yeah, I mean, the history here is just absolutely fascinating. I'm glad we got to talk about it. And, uh, and and yeah, do a literature episode. Obviously, we're writers. I'm amazed we haven't gotten to this one yet, but this this was a fantastic one to cover. I had a lot of fun. And now you can watch the Foxy Merkins. I'm doing that as soon as this closes. <laughs> now you can watch the Foxy Merkins on Amazon, as well as These Lips, the one-hour special where I love the pun so fucking much. Once you told me, I'm just, I'm, I'm losing it. It's such a good pun. So the Foxy Merkins and These Lips. You also have Jackie's Twitch so every other Saturday. Please tune in. It's always a great time. It's so good to get new, fresh comedy during this time that we're kind of all locked in our homes now that cases are spiking. So definitely check it out. Jackie, once again, thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Uh, Guys, if you like the podcast today, please rate it. Give it five stars. It helps us so much. Suggest it to your friends. Suggest it to your enemies to see if we can open their hearts to some new things. Guys, thank you all so much for being here. And Andrew, see you next week, man. See you next week, man. Bye. Bye. Bye.